0: The Severin 2023 summer sale begins June 30th. Exclusive titles include the UHD premiere of Frank Hennenlotter's Bad Biology with a limited edition hardcover packaging, the all-new restored version of the last horror film starring Joe Spinell and Carolyn Monroe, and the ultimate 4K of the notorious video-nasty Nightmare in its never-before-seen version, plus five more eye-popping titles, brain-roasting bundles, and more through July 3rd, only through our friends over at severinfilms.com. Once again, that is severinfilms.com.
1: Very well done, Scott. And I am here to tell you about Fangoria. You know them. They've been at it for over 40 years, and they're back and better than ever. This gorgeous magazine is, guess what, highly collectible, and is delivered right to your front door four times a year, and each issue is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future, with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including from time to time your intrepid KingCast hosts. I maybe have a piece in the next issue that's about to hit stands, so check that shit out. This high-quality writing, and I say it because I wrote in that one, uh, will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine. So if you want to join in on the fun, well, you'll need to subscribe. And all you need to do in order to do that is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And guess what, babies? KingCast listeners are in the family, so I have a nifty promo code for you. You can save a whopping 25% off your order if you use the code KINGCAST at checkout.
0: Now, with all of that said, let's get on with the show.
2: My name is Stephen King.
0: The ice is gonna break. Bad Rob, Bad Rob. You guys wanna
3: go see a dead body?
0: Well, sometimes, that is is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler.
1: And I'm Eric Vespi.
0: And we are your hosts. This week's guest is one of our favorite documentarians, having helmed 2011's Beauty Day, 2015's How to Build a Time Machine, which it just so happens is getting a fancy new physical release via Vinegar Syndrome as we speak. And of course, Shutter's excellent Cursed Films documentary series, which has two seasons. You can go watch via that streamer right now and you absolutely should. Uh today he's here to talk to us about one of my personal favorite titles in the Stephen King canon, 1991's Needful Things, which was adapted with uh let's call them mixed results for the big <laughs> screen uh two years later in 1993 Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Kingcast stage Mr. Jay
2: Shield. Jay, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys.
0: Yeah, I'm you're I'm you're really okay. excited to have you here because and I I actually did a little digging in my, in my emails or something, or maybe it was the DMS, but what, whatever I, I realized, like, I first talked to you like many years ago, like this would have been 2015 before how to build a time machine came out. And I think I got my hands on a screener for it. And then, uh, I, I promoted that film very heavily at, at BMD or what was for me very heavily, like multiple, multiple posts. I love that documentary so much. I just rewatched it the other night with uh, my roommates and uh, they fucking loved it. They, they, they hadn't seen it. And I was so excited to hear that it's uh it's getting a physical release. Um, I'm just rambling now. Thank you for making this movie. <laughs> that movie rules.
2: Uh, oh, thank you-, you for watching it. And, and thank you for having a, a roommate party. It's definitely one of those movies you throw on and just, have a real wild time. You know what I mean? Everyone drinking beers, doing cartwheels,
0: smoking cigars, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, the scene. No, mm-hmm. um, I, I live in a very movie, movie friendly uh, household. But um, for anyone who's not seen it, could you could you maybe tell the listeners what how to build a time machine is about?
2: Sure. Um, <clears throat> it's been a while since I've had to Pitch sum this. it up, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um yeah. It's, it's essentially about two men who, uh, are building time machines, one of which is a prop replica from the 1960 film, the time machine, which is being built by Rob Niosi, who's building a a replica that's so detailed that when I started filming him, he was, I think he was 10 years into the project and I filmed him for, for three or something. Um, So his attraction to that is through the film and through having had this experience with his father, seeing the film at a young age, and it was just a very impressionable, uh, formative experience for him. And the other subject in the film is Ronald Millett. He's a theoretical physicist, and he's attempting to build a real-time machine uh, basically because he lost his father uh, when he was a kid, his father died unexpectedly of a heart attack. So it's been his his journey to try to figure out how to mm-hmm. travel through time so he can go back in time, um, see his father again and and potentially save his father or warn his father uh not to, I don't know, smoke or eat red meat or whatever causes heart <laughs> attacks now. But right. um so yeah, it's, the, it's very kind of scary these movies. two stories. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I thought um it was well actually before before I go down that road I I saw Ron in the news just just recently there was like yeah he uh, had a, a
2: guardian article
0: yeah that um and that he thinks he knows how to do it now but it like it, it was like well it would basically look like a series of rotating lasers and then like later yeah. in the article, and I'm th- sitting there thinking, like, we can do rotating lasers. That's fucking. Yeah. Yeah,
1: of course we <laughs> uh-huh. can do that.
0: And then I like read further into the article and it was like the device itself would have to be bigger than the known universe or something. And I was like, well, Ron, That's the catch. I don't. Th- <laughs> yeah, I don't think we can we can fund that exactly or have the materials <laughs> to, to build it. But as long as it exists in theory, I, I think it's a fascinating doc and and really touching like the 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 lengths one guy is going to in order to satisfy this sort of like just obsessive urge to perfect the uh the the screen replica version and then this other guy trying to trying to get back together with his dad it's um you see like different levels of obsession unfolding here and the uh it's it's nice to see a story about like two people touched by obsession who aren't necessarily doing it for evil reasons i feel like you know it's just it's just heartwarming they want to do something good and uh and um it's just beautifully shot the whole thing can't say enough good things about it i hope all of our thank you so much uh, we'll check yeah it's
2: uh it's also kind of a love letter to cinema in many ways and sure. um was a lot of fun to make and just a a great experience i'm still uh quite close with rob and spent a lot of time at his his beautiful home watching yeah. him put that machine together <laughs> um but fan, if anyone's a fan of like the big inspirations for that film were uh field of dreams Mm. Uh, close encounters, you know, this idea of people being inspired by some image, um, and connecting because of that, uh, inspiration. So looking at this original film, how it inspired one person to become an artist and one to, to become a scientist and, uh, touches on some themes that I think fans of film will, will enjoy.
1: Right. Now I must confess, I haven't seen this movie. Uh, and I normally it. wouldn't bring it up, but I, you know, I would just sit here quiet going, Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> congratulations. Uh, but like a, just a quick look at it. Cause I'm like, you know, I've seen the, the actual time machine from the George Powell thing. Cause I've been to Bob Burns's basement and I see that Bob Burns is featured in your, in yeah. your doc. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, Bob is, is, is such a fascinating guy i don't know if if listeners would know him by name but he he was like kind of the the head king of movie nerds like before uh you know i don't know the the before movie nerd culture kind of took over the mainstream you know he was he was a dude that you know uh uh ended up like being acting as like the cool uncle for people like Rob teen and um you know and all the special effects masters you know and they would all come over as like teenagers and help him build build out his house you might have some listeners might have heard about how he always decked out his house for um halloween in crazy Mm -hmm. themes and uh uh, and i think there's a whole documentary actually about about that uh as well but uh, anyway he's a fascinating dude he ended up getting a bunch of you know collecting a bunch of props and uh um and may- maybe this is explained in your movie, but it is you know it, my understanding is the uh uh the george powell time machine uh the one that's in his collection is is the screen used one yeah
2: it is, but it's <clears throat> it was heavily uh restored because right. i i believe it was sold at the m g m auction and and over the years ended up weirdly in a flea market where yeah. it was found, and the console was replaced and um you know was heavily damaged and missing pieces so he he kind of got everyone together that all of these people in the film industry that he had become friends with and they all worked together to restore the original prop um and it's you know it's amazing like the the idea of building props specifically for the screen like when you walk around the back of the time machine at Bob's place, it's wood, <laughs> you know, like right.
3: it's yep.
2: uh, very designed to be as cheap and, and uh, manageable as possible. But the, with Rob in my film, his approach to the t- building this prop replica is not replicating the prop, but replicating, right. as he puts it, the feeling he had when he saw the machine in the film. So he decides to use all of the materials that he assumes the Victorian time traveler would have used to build the machine. So it's like built out of, uh, you know, brass, mahogany, all of these really expensive materials (laughs) that uh, will last over time and become sort of this representation of basically the inspiration that the film Gave to him to be uh, become a filmmaker. He got into stop motion animation and worked on Pee Wee's Playhouse, and so it it's, was a very formative film for him. And visiting, as you know, visiting Bob's place, yeah. if you've if you're a film fan, you will likely see something in his home that is from a formative experience you had oh, <laughs> with always, a film. Yeah, yeah, uh, I have pictures of me with amazing. with
1: uh, with Mogwai. You know, the some gizmos. Mm-hmm. Uh He had like uh, some pieces of the alien queen from aliens. He had the David werewolf from American werewolf in London. Uh, and one of the funniest things that he had that I, I thought was really fascinating is he had the, uh, uh, another prop from American werewolf where it's the f- hand elongating prop whenever he's changing and his, right. his like hand starts growing and, uh and it looked a little like different. And um And he like he pointed that out. He's like he's like, yep, that's the prop from American Werewolf. But you'll notice the pigmentation has been altered on that, and it's now a black guy's hand. And it was because he reused Rick Baker reused that same prop for the thriller video. No shit, Michael Jackson. Yeah, oh wow, that's cool. So he's just like, yep. So, like, you know, Rick Baker after, you know, he's like, oh, well, I already have this, you know, and, you know, John Landis directed that as well. So, you know, it's just like, I already have this prop from this thing that we used. So why don't we, you know, I just uh, make it look like Michael Jackson's hand instead of uh, David Notton's. I had a That's colleague
0: cool. once that went to that dude's house, and I think I remember him telling me once that he held the the actual maquette of King Kong yeah, in his yeah. hands yep. and just like broke down crying. To hold something like that iconic, you know, or like this powerful sort of, sort of thing. And I I could imagine that being the case.
1: It's weird because I felt that same thing and it's, uh, and it's got weight to it. Um, You know, for folks that might not uh, have a complete understanding what, what this is, this, when they made King Kong back in the 30s, it's not like they they pulled what Rick Baker didn't built a giant animatronic later, or, you know, it wasn't the guy in a suit. It was essentially a stop motion puppet that represented Kong. Um, and this thing is maybe a foot and a half tall. It's pretty big, but over time, all the, uh, uh the you know the i guess it wasn't foam rubber but it was you know whatever they used to build the the kong thing the fur like all that stuff wore down and just left the armature the the metal skeleton so it's like the think of it like the T800 after it's been burned up right and this is what's left of kong um and uh and that's actually how i met bob uh, burns cuz i was on the set of peter jackson's remake and you know cameoed in it uh, and that's where I met him. Cause Bob and his wife, Kathy, who I, I think sadly passed, uh, recently, um, you know, they both cameoed as well. So there's like a reaction shot of them, you know, as, uh, as Kong busts out of the theater. Um, and so I met them there and then they're just like, yeah, if you're ever in my, you know, ever in an L- LA, come, come by the house. And, and, uh, I kind of had an idea of what to expect, but like, it's not until you're actually there. Um, like Jay was saying, it's just like, if you like silent movies, he's got a bunch of stuff. He's got a bunch of serial, you know, uh, 30 serial outfits and, you know, uh, fantasy stuff. And then there's stuff that I grew up with in the eighties and there's the time machine in the corner. It's like, uh, it, it's the coolest museum because there's no, it's probably the absolute worst way to preserve this stuff for posterity. But it's really rad as a film geek because it's not like most museums you go into. They'll, like, yeah, crest the Mona Lisa, you can touch it. You know, it's like this one is like, yeah, I want that, to hold that's gizmo. I held gizmo. Yeah,
2: it, it, it's wild that these items, especially the Kong uh, armature, which under any other circumstances, I would imagine would be in the Smithsonian, you know, like right. behind glass right. alongside, uh, Dorothy's Ruby slippers. Yeah. But in Bob's house, you can just walk over to it and pick it up and, and, um, it touches a lot of people. And, and like you said, it it is, there is the question of, is this the best way to preserve this? But in some ways it is, I mean, maybe not to, um, you know, a museum, all the museum heads out there probably don't like people going up and touching and wearing things down. And, but Bob has such a great heart and he just wants to share this stuff. And I think that's why he ended up with so much of this stuff because people knew he would be a great, uh, caretaker. Yeah.
1: Well, sorry to, to, to turn this whole opening bit into a Bob Burns rules, but that dude, uh, that that dude's great. Um, I haven't seen him in, in many 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 years, but uh, uh, but yeah, he, he was carrying the torch. You know, it, you we can question how how great his methods of press uh, preserving all this stuff is, but you know the fact is is a lot of the shit that he has was stuff the studio was just going to throw away anyway. You know, and, and he rescued mm-hmm. so, you know. I, I cut him a little bit of slack. You know, any, any of you out there listening going all oh, that should be held with white gloves and, you know, put, put behind, uh, you know, uh, uh, UV protected glass and whatnot. Uh, it's There's like, well, plenty you know. of
0: shit under glass. Let yeah. this man have his toys and let people play with them.
1: <laughs> right. Um, one thing uh,
0: I, I know we've gone a little long here on this intro, but there, there is one question I want to ask you about cursed films which is sure. like how to build a time machine, a uh, a uh, 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 thing you, you directed that I, I would highly recommend to our listeners. It's on shutter. There's two seasons of it. Um, I have
1: watched those. So, so uh, I won't be embarrassed by saying I haven't seen the, <laughs> next, the next thing of yours that we're talking about. Uh, every
0: episode tackles a different movie that was quote unquote cursed in some way. You know, these are movies that had difficult productions for whatever reason or something bad happened on them. And then, You know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, in the populace, it becomes like, oh, this movie was something was cursed about it. Doesn't mean that they're all supernatural. You know, like don't come to it with that with (laughs) that attitude, as as we may have been talking about before the show. But um, the second season uh, contains an episode on Twilight Zone, the movie, which is a movie that I have seen. A bazillion times. It's one of my favorite movies. I know that movie isn't well loved and it's particularly not well loved given the fatal accident that occurred on the the set of that movie. Um, For any of our listeners that don't know, John Landis directed a segment in that movie. It's an anthology film and uh, managed to kill his leading star plus two children with a helicopter. Um, Not personally, but through basically negligence while they were shooting it. And I had always seen prior to that episode, uh, a snippet of very grainy VHS film that showed the accident in progress, but cut off right before it happened. Right. And in your episode of, of, uh, cursed films, um, you show the full footage and also footage I had never seen before, like from an angle I had never seen before. And this, um, I'm sure I don't need to tell you uh, proved to be a, a controversial choice with some of the viewers of that. And I'm wondering, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't have any complaints for you, but I'm curious uh, what your thinking was in including that. I have my own theories, but I'm, I'm curious to hear it from the uh, horse's mouth.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't uh, a, a decision taken lightly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess part of it, the, the, the whole series is a bit of a provocation. Like a lot of people had talked about it being a bait and switch and, you know, um, digging into it, thinking it's going to be, uh, you know, a Buzzfeed list of top 10 cursed films visualized, but it actually, other short, shitty
0: horror docs that are out there. Yeah.
2: Right. <laughs> you said it. I didn't, um, I did say and, it. <laughs> and, you know, the attempt here was to get like, that's obviously part of it. The things that happen on these sets, but I didn't want to treat it as a checklist. And, you know, there are some things that if you know about these stories, you'll hear these uh, repeated in the series, but the idea was to come at it from kind of a more, um, Skeptical perspective, but not necessarily a debunking kind of perspective. But right. it, overall, the the goal of the series, I think, was to provide context to all of these stories that have uh, been told about the making of these films. And I, I with that, you know, that that's that episode. It's actually the last episode of the first season. And it, it kind of. Oh, is it brings us across this arc of questioning why we believe the things we believe, and you know, ideas of magical thinking and coincidence and so on and so forth. And then, when you get to the end of the series, the idea was would you would you be less inclined to playfully share these stories if you saw what happened? you know, like the 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 idea that it essentially kills the the, uh, uh, fun around the spreading of that particular story. And maybe it doesn't necessarily, um, judge people for sharing those stories because we share them ourselves. Um, but it just, you know, I, the hope was that you kind of reconsider some of these, these legends through the eyes of some of the people who were there and the ways that it affected them and the ways they witnessed it affecting other people that they were close with and that was that was part of the reason and it's funny that one of the things that i came across was uh a a big collection of news uh you know recorded off the television surrounding the trial from that time and the footage was was played in the courtroom and was broadcast on tv and and for the most part People were cutting away from it, but there were a couple of stations that played the footage in full. And there's I think there were five or six camera angles. The one that we show is the furthest away, and the one that is the it's it's horrible footage, absolutely terrible footage. Yeah. Um, but it's it's the least uh graphic, I guess. Right. Because they, they shot it in a you know like a medium close up on a long lens and oh my god oh, every one of those angles has the accident so we we went with the one furthest away and it, you know it it also I, I I usually try to let the subjects dictate the tone of of um, a subject or an episode or a film or whatever and Richard Sawyer's story about witnessing that accident he was Mm -hmm. just so emotionally devastated that i I think that that kind of pushed it a little bit as well like it it had to match his devastation and and what he witnessed um and to kind of you know there is a little bit of a weirdness and and it i don't want to say it was my job to kind of tackle this but this idea of the the uh legendary twilight zone footage out there that you know some people don't want to see some people have seek it out and watch it and like it, it it almost reduced the the that material down to like a weird you know gore website curiosity right mm-hmm. and um i thought you know it it's it's out there the the least we can do is bring context to it in a way that uh that, you know, turns it into something that actually happened rather than something that's lingering on like a torrent site that people might seek out out of weird yeah. curiosity.
0: That's um, kind of along the lines of what I thought. Um, but but very interesting. I, I think. Uh, I don't know. Like I had I had seen that movie as a kid. I I grew up with it and I, I also I still watch it occasionally and. um I had heard that story. I didn't hear that story until much later in life. Hmm. And my read on the entire situation was I've heard this story like over and over and over again by now. You know, it's, it's a matter of, it's not a secret, you know, by any stretch. Um, It's just kind of fallen through the cracks of time. And if you hear that story, but you weren't maybe necessarily alive when it happened, or if you don't see the footage, it doesn't, hit you as hard. And once you've seen that particular bit of footage, I think like the full weight of it hits you. And also like you were saying, like hearing from, uh, did you say his name was Bob, the guy that Richard, was really broke Sawyer? up about it. Yeah. Oh, Richard. Richard. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Richard, you, you hear his, uh, you know, testimony to that. It's just, it's heartbreaking. And I thought that it's, uh, it's a challenging thing to watch, but I also felt like, it really makes clear exactly what went on here. And, and and sometimes if you don't see it with your own two eyeballs, then maybe you don't understand the gravity of it. And I think that that's what that's what may have uh, bothered some viewers about it. But I I would argue that that's where its entire power lies. And that's what makes that episode so incredible.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to be the one to like bombard someone with something they don't want to look at I, I think one big mistake was not putting a warning at the top of the episode right. um what i i think they eventually did but it definitely could have used that so that people were prepared for that um but you know that that that's not anything i was thinking about when when we were in the edit and trying to tell the best version of the right, story of course yeah. it, it's also it's a weird thing because the series you know based on the title it sounds like a certain type of series and and something that could be very light and you know poppy and um when we started to try to do something a little more with that there is like a line where it feels like okay am i using a sledgehammer to you know nail a a nail (laughs) like or yeah is is this too too heavy too like You know, too much for something that is just a show about cursed films. Um, But I didn't want to think about it that way. I just wanted to tell the story in the way that I thought was the most compelling and intriguing. Um, But it was always a an uphill battle with the the cursed element of things, especially you know, you approach someone and say, "Can you tell your story about this horrible thing that happened on a?" a film set. It's for our show called Cursed Films. It's not a you know the greatest title to approach people with. But after the first season, (laughs) we definitely had a easier time once people saw what the show was. Right. Um, Right. Well it's a weird one though. It's a weird show because, you know, it, it does kind of pull the rug out from under you, I think, if you're not expecting anything beyond just regurgitation of fun facts.
0: Well, I do think it is a uh, a weird show in general, Jay, like the the tone of it changes here and there. Like by the time like Greg Turkington showed up in season two, I was (laughs) like, there's more humor in the show than I think people realize. Like it's it is under the surface. Um, But I think that it's uh, I think it would be the kind of thing that our our crowd would respond to, certainly. And it's and and I responded to it. I just think that. You know, here's another thing that I'm saying you're not saying, but I think that, that there are a million horror documentaries out there and it's all like talking heads, people sitting in a room. They all appear to be made by people who grew up watching like a BH one's like, I love the 90s. And it's like, I can do that. I'll just get a bunch of people in a room with a blank background and have them talk. And then we'll have mm-hmm. scenes from the movie. And that shit, you see like two of those and you're like, all right, I get it. I get it. I don't. I don't need yeah. any more of this. And yours was, or uh, cursed films, is a, a huge cut above that. So, uh, congratulations. Well, I appreciate that on, on that. It's a. It's a. Thank you. Incredible piece of work. With all of that Thank said, you. I think that we need to get to the Stephen King shit before our listeners kill us. Um, <laughs> I, I I I think all of this shit is fascinating. I would. I would talk. To, we'll get a beer one day, and I will no. just ruin you with questions. So Jay, uh, what is
2: your Stephen King origin story? Well, um, I mean, I guess it's probably attempting to read some of his books uh, when I was a kid because my mom had a lot of them, um, you know, like it and the dark half and um, had a lot of them uh, on hard, like the hardcover original releases Sure. And the covers, much like the VHS covers at the time, the covers fascinated me, yes. and I attempted to read it at a uh, kind of a young age, and I I got you know to a certain point and then um, stopped or gave up. I can't remember, and I did read the dark half, but the I remember the dance, the dance macabre Book being a part mm-hmm. of her collection and being kind of w- confused by it, and uh, because I think his face was on it, and just it, it basically through the books. And then over time, I, I guess I would have started seeing the films and connecting that, um, he is the person who was responsible for all of those. But mm-hmm. it, on the film side, I think some of the early memories are you know, Zelda and Pet Cemetery, and uh. Oh. Oh, I no. have a very strong memory of the kid getting run over with the steamroller in uh, <laughs> <Yes>. Maximum Overdrive, <laughs> yeah. and that just disturbing me as a kid. Um, That's my favorite part in
0: Maximum Overdrive, hands down.
2: Easy. Yeah, yeah, it's the the pop machine shooting out the cans, and it's weird because it's so playful at the beginning, and All then right. you have that crazy music that that you know the kind of yeah. psycho via mm-hmm. like metal machines <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and it completely just you know ruins the the fun of a uh, little league baseball game uh,
0: but in a really <laughs> great
2: way I think it's indicative of the tone that that
0: movie is intended to have but doesn't really stick the landing on which is you know like uh, as we've said on the show a, a, a ton of times we think that Stephen King's you know, platonic ideal of a horror thing is like an EC Comics vibe. So mm-hmm. when a steamroller barrels on the field at a fucking little league game, like out of nowhere, the steamroller has not been introduced prior to this. Like even like an establishing shot outside the the, the baseball diamond, it, it just shows up and starts running over kids left and right. I um I think there's really no speak- like
2: Chekhov steamroller. <laughs> In no this movie
0: <laughs> not at all i think that's so like cartoony and over the top like if you're if you're not on board with that i i you're probably not going to be on board with maximum overdrive which is admittedly not a great movie but if you watch it from the right angle it's a lot of fun it's
2: one of those the, the other thing with that movie is the opening with the cars going over the bridge
3: <laughs> yeah, when yeah. The,
2: the bridge goes up the marla that had a big yeah, yeah, that that had a big uh, impact on me because I grew up in Niagara and we're right next to the Welland Canal. So there were a lot of bridges that we would go over, and I remember having that fear of the bridge starting to go up and the car rolling backwards and ending up in the canal. Um, so yeah, that I think that movie really struck a chord with me.
0: That may make you the first guest we have ever had on the show who was scared of Maximum Overdrive.
2: I, I was afraid of weird things like, you know, like a lot of people, I guess the day after was a movie that messed me up. Mm. Uh, there was an episode of Webster where he walks into a room and there's a, a doll with (laughs) like, it's the daughter of someone who died and they kept a doll in her bedroom. And I remember that Webster episode (laughs) just being uh, like nightmarish. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird what you're afraid of as a kid. (laughs)
0: I haven't, man. I don't. I watched Webster as a kid. Uh, I don't remember that episode. I remember the. I had to confirm. Weird...
2: I thought maybe it was like a, a weird, mixed up memory. But I did find the clip on on YouTube. I'll have to send it a, to you. I,
0: I mix up plot lines between Punky Brewster, uh, Webster, and grow uh, not growing pains. Fucking different strokes a mm. lot. Mm. You know, yeah. they had like they all had like in terms of these you know, scary episodes. I think each one of those sitcoms had a scary episode and they were yeah. like, like Punky Brewster had like the, the, uh, the pedophile episode, right? Or
2: was I that different? Dip, no, well, that was it different might have strokes. But different strokes that, had one no, for sure.
1: Di- that was different yeah. strokes with the bicycle guy. And yeah, then Punky yep. had the one where her, her friend got stuck in the refrigerator. Right. Were, that's, yeah. that's
0: what I was thinking of.
1: Yeah. See, they- yeah.
2: <laughs> the there's 80s, also a uh, the uh, uh, highway to stuff. heaven had a werewolf. Michael Mm -hmm. Landon as a werewolf episode.
1: Yeah, that was a thing. Yeah. I never never watched Highway to Heaven. I remember that very vividly because that was a show my grandparents watched. And it's. I think it's one of the reasons why I love Halloween season so much because growing up every single sitcom I watched, Roseanne had, you know, notorious Halloween episodes and it was like spooky season. It always felt right, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. where they all these like little comedy shows would do their, their spin. And, you know, it wouldn't be super scary, but it's just horror enough in something that usually is the furthest away from horror that like just always made me so happy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's kind of um, I feel like a lot of Stephen King's output uh and it, it especially in the films lands in that weird zone there's there are just the the he the tonal line that he walks is really interesting
1: yeah
0: have you uh have you kept up with the uh, writing at all or are you just checking out the movies from time to time
2: uh mostly the movies i i've yes i read i've read the shining uh i did end up eventually reading it I read the, uh, uh, the Kennedy time travel book. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, um, some, some of the writing, but, uh, not as much as I, I should or would like to.
0: Right on. Yeah. Now, uh, the title you brought us today is needful things, which is, as I said in the intro, one of our, or one of my, I, I won't speak for best be here, but it's, uh, it's one of my favorite titles in his entire yeah. bibliography. Um, I think it's also one of the most misunderstood titles. Um, I could go on and on about this, and I have on our previous episodes. But uh, I, I really want to hear your take. And I'm um, before we get started, though, I'm, I'm hoping that you can uh, lay out the general plot for Needful Things for anyone who hasn't read it or seen the ad adaptation.
2: Sure. Um... It's basically uh, a a small town that's disrupted by the arrival of what seems to be a a salesman or an entrepreneur who has a shop called Needful Things, and Mm -hmm. this shop targets people's wishes in exchange for a deed that they owe to the shop owner. And the deed has a, a sort of connection to other people in the town where he's He's creating chaos in the town by playing everyone against each other in exchange for these items that they absolutely need, Um, including a letter jacket and a little porcelain person. (laughs) Um, And uh, honestly, it feels like American Pickers a little bit. It's like uh, the racetrack toy thing, I remember thinking mm. like, oh, I would love that, even though I don't play the ponies. The The device is uh, cool as it is, but that feels like something that would be found on American Pickers. So this guy is basically a flipper that's coming to town, <laughs> and he's flipping in exchange for deeds, and it's suggested that he's the devil. Mm-hmm. Which I, I thought, you know, it, I haven't read the book, but I kind of thought, you know, the whole Santa Satan thing. He's got kind of a Santa quality to him, but <laughs> also a satanic quality. So I, I was wondering if, when King came up, came up with the idea, if he just wrote down Satan and then thought for a moment and wrote down Santa and thought for a moment and was like, hey, all right, needful things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's um, I it, th- what I love about this book is that. uh you know, King wrote it to be uh, like a black comedy, like a very, very dark comedy. And it was not interpreted in that way at the time of its release. We've covered this on on previous episodes of the show, but uh, people just didn't get this book when it came out. And I think it's because they weren't used to them trying to do like funny and scary at the same time. So they were just looking for scary and. Didn't like it. This book was not well received uh, mm. uh, upon release, nor was the movie. But the movie is kind of—I think—you need like a limited series in order to really do the 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 complicated web of this story justice.
2: It's funny you say yeah. that because I I when I was watching it, uh, speaking of the film, yeah. thought that it could be the perfect sitcom setup. <laughs> like it felt like a sitcom to me. It kind
1: of is. I, I like, was. This is- Reminded ahead, of please. Little House
2: on the Prairie as well. i Right down to the ending of of the movie, kind of reminding me of the series finale of Little House on the Prairie. Um, man, you are man, all. I would love to Michael see an Evil Thing sitcom.
1: <laughs> yeah, you. We're gonna need a Matlock reference next because these are all shows my grandparents
3: watched.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that we're talking about Highway to Heaven, How Old House on the Prairie. Uh, yeah, well, I'm Mason, under. An- let's talk about <laughs> Old Perry Mason. <laughs>
2: I'm sitting underneath a giant framed Columbo poster, so I guess it makes sense. I think Jessica that makes Fletcher she <laughs> wrote. Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, I, my my argument has always been that this the adaptation or adaptation that needs to live of this book is a really funny dark comedy. You know, um, mm-hmm. the the movie captures the. Machinations of Leland Gaunt's plot to destroy this town fairly well, but I think the book is even a little bit more intricate. Is that correct, Vespy? Am I just talking out of my ass?
1: Yeah, I mean it's been a minute since I've uh, reread it, Um, but I want to. You're not wrong uh, in that, and the book is because it's such a huge tome, it, it gets into way more of the nitty gritty on who is fucking with who and how that's having a ripple effect to X, Y, and Z. I mean, that's something you can just do when you have a 800 or 700 page book, however long this one is um, that you can't get across, which is why I think your, your idea of a mini series is a good one. Um, And I want to throw in that something different has happened uh, in my life since uh uh we last talked about this title.
0: Oh where um
1: and I was going to revisit it this morning because I'm like, I'll rewatch the movie, and know, you know, I pulled I have it on Blu-ray. I pulled the Blu-ray up. I'm like, oh maybe I'll watch it with a commentary and pull some factoids. And then I'm like, you know what? I keep hearing about this extended cut of Needful Things. Um Yeah, and- I've still never seen it. So I watched that this morning. And oh, no shit. That, it's not on DVD. It's out of print. It was released once on like a German Blu-ray as a special or a DVD. I don't think it was even Blu-ray um, as a special feature. It's a three hour cut of Needful Things. It what? is it is on YouTube and uh, I'm sure that uh, it is illegally on YouTube, but it was there. And so I decided to watch it instead. Um, and when I looked into the history of it. The reason why this exists was because the movie kind of tanked when it came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I think it was TBS decided, you know what doesn't tank in the early nineties when it comes to Stephen King or miniseries. Uh, and the it miniseries had been, you know, the biggest thing in the world. Uh, lots of Stephen King had ended up as miniseries. So they went back to the director who happens to be Charlton Heston's son, uh, and said, Hey, uh, we want you to recut this using any extra footage. And he's like, well, I shot a bunch of stuff that didn't make it. Apparently he didn't love the process of doing this and still thinks that theatrical cut is his definitive cut. Uh, but what he did is he cut, he made a three hour long version of the movie, added in an hour of, of extra scenes and elongated scenes and, and whatnot. And, uh, and then it screened, uh, on TBS as a, as an original Stephen King miniseries, even though it had hit theaters like a year before. So, wow. uh, So how is it? It's, it's fascinating. It opens up with a car chase what (laughs) yeah so when Leland Gaunt comes into town uh he like smashes into Alan Pangborn uh the sheriff Ed Harris smashes into his fucking sheriff car and there's a scene in the movie where his deputy's car door is missing and it's the scene where he uh um, he confronts, uh, Buster, uh, and, and not confronts him. He sees the car park there and he's going to write the ticket for Buster. He's parked in the handicap spot. Uh, and you'll notice in that scene that the deputy's car door is missing. And that's because Leland Gaunt's, you know, badass, like fifties, like mysterious devil car or whatever. Uh, comes up uh, and like side swipes him. And there's this giant car chase that goes throughout all the like outskirts of castle rock. And then as they're chasing this car and then the car veers off of the road and it, it blows up and, and uh, in the, the fiery uh, you know how like you get those heat ripples and stuff sometimes in the summer sure. through the fiery heat ripples uh, uh, Pangborn like sees a figure and the figure is of course Max von Sydow, uh, you know and he's smiling and Adam uh, uh, but then they find no body in, in the wreckage and and uh, and whatnot and then it goes continues on like normal but it's like this three minute long action sequence that <laughs> opens up the fucking movie um the the one thing that they did add uh and i'm sure we'll we'll jump around into this uh as we get into the story that i think scott in particular is going to be very excited about is apparently they cut out almost everything with uh um the kid with the baseball card his mom is the one that's obsessed with the elvis sunglasses all that stuff is in is in the, no uh, shit thing with except uh is there well, an on screen elvis no, there's lots of Elvis music, but in the movie, it comes with a bust of Elvis. There's a it, it, she her needful thing is a bust of Elvis with the sunglasses and she becomes obsessed with it and lies in bed with the bust of Elvis and makes out with it. Okay, hold, very, on, hold on hold on for a second. Yeah,
0: yes. Uh, Jay has not read the book, so Vespi I would I, I, this is excellent because I would very much like you to hear you describe what is going on with the Elvis stuff in the book? Jay, you're going to love this.
1: Yes. I am okay, excited. Jay. excited. So um, the, the, what's her, his name? Brian Rusk, I believe. So his, his mom, he's the kid with the baseball card that loves the baseball card. Uh, his mom becomes obsessed with, uh, has been obsessed with Elvis Presley and her needful thing in the book are glasses that were worn by Elvis. Sunglasses. Right? And yeah. Sunglasses, you know, the, the, you know, you know, the Elvis sunglasses, when you say Elvis sunglasses, you know what we're talking about. It's got the gold rims, yeah. the big ass fucking lenses, whatnot. Um, and Isn't every time she wearing she put,
2: it in the movie?
1: Yes. You see, you see Near her a end? couple of times in the movie wearing, yeah. wearing it. Yeah, uh, And those, I think the only reason you see that it today would come across as an Easter egg, right? Like, oh, that's an Easter egg. Cause they didn't, it, the thing was they actually filmed <laughs> all the shit <laughs> and then they say. cut it out. Right. <laughs> it's the editing. Oh my god, I gotta
0: see this shit.
1: Yeah, um, so in the book when she puts on the the glasses she kind of has these visions of her seeing Elvis perform Mm -hmm. and that's what it starts off as and then she gets picked out of the crowd and dances with Elvis on stage and that turns into her every time she puts on the glasses she and Elvis are fucking all the time so she never, she becomes obsessed with these glasses and she uh, she, like, doesn't leave her room. She doesn't leave her bedroom. You know, she just will put on the glasses. And in the movie, it, it, funnily enough, they included this in the TV cut. They the, What's interesting about this cut is they completely cut out all the R-rated cursing. Um, so there's all these like TV dubs of like, gosh, darn it and stuff like that. But, (laughs) but they uh, left in this mom furiously masturbating with sunglasses. They they do like she's in, in the bed, like (laughs) deep soul kissing this marble bust of Elvis while she's wearing the sunglasses. She makes this big show of putting her hand under the covers and she is so clearly uh, flicking the bean. She's so clearly masturbating and uh wow. yeah the scientific so, term for that so for i i thought that would be exciting and i didn't tell scott that i'd watch this cut uh before we started recording um so i i wanted it to be fresh on air so
2: Damn see it. again the elvis thing it just again reminds me of american pickers or pawn stars or something But <laughs>
3: You're right. like
2: I'm just waiting for someone's needful thing to be a a FedEx bike rack circa 1920 (laughs) or something. Um, Or an
1: old like Coca-Cola freezer.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Yeah, wouldn't be a mid-roll without two things, Scott. Either Mr. Robert Zombie, the third. Yes. Or Lumi Labs. And guess what? It's time for us to talk about some Lumi Labs. They are the kings of microdosing, which is where you take a little THC gummy throughout the day to maintain your chill. You're not getting high, really, but you're keeping relaxed. For me, these Lumi gummies have been a godsend. I've spoken a lot about how uh, I have trouble maintaining a normal sleep schedule. Um, Melatonin doesn't really cut it for me. I feel groggy and weird if I don't get the perfect amount of sleep. But what does work for me are these little Lumi gummies that have these Delta 9 THC, which means, my pretties, that you can take these no matter what your state's marijuana laws are. Not only can you take them, you can have them delivered right to your front door, including in our the great state of Texas that uh, apparently still really hates weed. Um, but it's perfectly legal for me to get them because they are a synthetic THC strain. And that's what I've been doing. I've been popping one before bedtime. And guess what? I get relaxed. I fall right to sleep. That's how I avoid keeping off of my vampiric sleep schedule. I think Scott takes these a little bit more recreationally. Uh, Maybe. But, but what I can say is that this product is aimed helping you relax and it works. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com. And if you like what you see, you can use the code KINGCAST to save 30% off your first order and get free shipping. Again, that's microdose.com. Code KINGCAST. Very well done. Now, let's get back to that show.
0: Jay, what would your needful thing be?
2: Hmm. Well, let me just say, just to jump in for one second here, it looks Mm. like that other cut might be coming up on the Kino Lorber UHD release of Needful Things. No shit. But anyways, my needful thing... The thing that would bring me the most joy that i would take on a deed to uh own i i'm gonna go with the do you remember when dick tracy came out and they mm-hmm. had a uh like a preview screening the night before the release and the way to get in is you had to buy a t-shirt that says admit one mm. and it has dick tracy on that, it but- Mm-hmm. And you, you, they would write in what theater it was that you were seeing it at. I wanted yeah. to go to that premiere so badly. It was like a late Thursday night, definitely not ideal for kids. Not that Dick Tracy really was ideal for kids in many ways. Um, I wanted that shirt so badly. I remember begging my mom to take me to the uh, midnight screening so I could get that shirt. And it just didn't happen. So um, Midnight screening my stuff. needful thing is available on eBay for a reasonable price but <laughs> I will take it from the devil if I if I can. It's yes. funny you say that
0: because like one of my most wanted things in childhood was like Batman came out and I think Tracy came out either the same summer or the summer after. Um I'm sure one of our helpful listeners will
2: Summer after. Have, yeah.
0: Summer after. Okay. Um, I loved Batman went ape shit for Batman, and then Dick Tracy was like, in my mind, it was kind of another comic book movie, you know yeah, and at that mm-hmm. time, I was not burned out on seven thousand comic book movies, so I was very hyped, and I had all the Dick Tracy action figures, you know i had a I set up a little diorama with uh uh Dick Tracy and Big Boy Caprice, and there was a little box. Uh, that Lips Manless was supposed to be inside of because mm. he gets sunk to the bottom of the ocean in that movie. <laughs> yeah, I know my Dick Tracy shit, motherfuckers. <laughs> but did one you have of the blank? They, I didn't have the blank. That's where I'm going with this. Like, the blank was the one action figure pictured on the back of the box that I could not find for fucking years, like two, three years, which at that age, you're like, you know, that's that's seven decades. You know, I, I kept my eye out like for as long as maybe not two or three years, but for as long as Dick Tracy action figures were available. Anytime my mom went to like a Target or a Walmart or fucking anything like that, I would tag along and I would go I would make a beeline to the toy section to see if I could find the blank. Mm. The blank had a black coat, a black fedora with like a neon green uh, band across it. Um, looked badass. No face. Yeah, it was my favorite character in the movie because the blank was mysterious. Turns yeah. out it's in, it's Madonna in a Mission Impossible mask, but whatever the fuck, <laughs> you know. I wanted that I, action I, figure I, so
2: bad. I think that might be part of why it was so rare. Um, or this is my theory because they it had a spoiler. Uh, you take the mask off and Madonna is underneath.
3: So what? I I wonder no if
2: seriously yeah, you, you you could take the mask off and Madonna's face was under it.
0: Hold on, I'm looking. Which is up. a spoiler, <laughs> obviously. That is so I,
1: I that that is the sound of Scott typing. Oh my not god, you're view. right. Yeah. There's a fake. There's a fucking picture of it.
0: <laughs> How did I not know this?
2: Listen, I'm going to be honest here. I do a a podcast called Film Junk, and we just recorded uh, one of our premium podcasts about the pulp action hero movies in the 90s. I just watched Dick Tracy. This is not coming out of my mind. Fresh or uh, like I'm remembering it from childhood. (laughs) We revisited (laughs) this. This is
0: crazy. You are destroying my world right now. Like, (laughs) how on earth did I not know this?
2: How much are they on eBay?
0: This They're must pretty be a compelling Christy action man. that uh, our lizards would, want. So for
2: carded, there's one for 3290 that has 18 watchers. And there's a graded one, 85 uh, 10000 or best offer, 26 watchers. This is that probably is a insane. better needful thing than my Dick Tracy shirt.
1: <laughs> this is crazy.
0: You're right. I'm looking at uh, eBay right now. Well, we've fully derailed this conversation, with Dick Tracy talk. <laughs> yeah, but uh, if one of our listeners could buy me the blank action figure on <laughs> eBay for three thousand two hundred and ninety dollars, that will uh, we will send you a T-shirt. I can promise you that.
2: <laughs> well, and if one of your listeners want to buy me the Dick Tracy "Admit One" ticket shirt. There are a bunch on eBay for $17, a lot easier than $10,000. <laughs> well,
0: if you can pull off that combo pack, we will send you not only a shirt, but also a poster. So, wow. you know, I'm just throwing
1: that out there. Holy shit. Well, lucky yeah. for you, Leland Gaunt does listen to the show. So <laughs> so he can make that happen. The only thing is you're going to have to flatten some priest tires somewhere (laughs) but you know scott was gonna do that anyway so
0: yeah i i'm still you know this came up on a previous uh episode of the show that we did on needful things like what my needful thing would be and i was like i'm not gonna answer that it would be too it would be something offensive or something that would get me in trouble you know Mm. and i still i've been thinking about that question ever since i don't know what it is but I, I do know it would probably be something unsavory. It would be like, yeah. you know, something people would not something I would get yelled at about, like, <laughs> you know, like an endless like a sack filled with endless money or right. something like mm. that, you know? And it's like, oh, you're being greedy. Fuck you. If I have a sack with endless money, I can donate to as many charities I want. I can build my dream house. I can fucking I can do like I can I can live a life, you know, I could do whatever I wanted. But, you know, maybe it's maybe it's more untoward than that. You don't know. I'm not going to say it on air. <laughs> you know, that would be upsetting for all of us. Yeah, but well, I, it brings to mind
2: haven't... Stalker, right? The, the movie Stalker and the idea of mm-hmm. which we covered in season two of Curse Films, the idea of a wish being granted and in Stalker, the, the uh, you know, the wish being granted is what you actually want rather than what you wish for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was reminded of, of that film a little bit with uh needful things in in only that way (laughs) i mean really there's nothing else (laughs) like stalker but um yeah it's a it's a great uh, i mean i like these sort of uh reminds me of the the subgenre of people who like a simple plan where people come upon money and and it just starts to degrade relationships and corrupt people uh this kind of falls into that category a little bit do you think if you had a
0: shitload of money, it would corrupt you? Me?
1: Yeah. Um, Jay's like, well, yeah. I have a shitload of money, so
2: <laughs> if I'd... you had
1: if you had ten billion dollars,
3: mm-hmm.
0: how do you think? What kind of life are you living?
2: I am living a. No matter what, I'll be living a sad life. <laughs> But
1: so it might as well be rich and sad. Is that your point of view?
2: Sure. Or, or at least, you know, spread some joy to others, which right. maybe sure. would bring me joy. But um, you know. yeah, I mean, I'm a, you know, as long as I can handle new release week every week with some <laughs> Blu-rays and 4Ks and, you know, get some more Columbo shit framed. I, I'm good. <laughs> I think you wouldn't do you wouldn't do anything imaginative with it um like uh
0: like your dream house like traveling the world like mm. bu-
1: buying no i would for just be friends. ready like, for a new like release things- week <laughs> <laughs> you'd buy a really big tv
2: yeah <laughs> to watch those four k's on yeah um no traveling would be i mean i mean sure if t- 10 billion dollars maybe that can get me to the moon that would be interesting
0: uh, we'll get into the stratosphere, as I understand mm-hmm. it. But uh,
1: I don't know. Vespy, remind me what your needful thing was. I think the last time we talked about it, like you didn't talk about it like a bag full of cash. You, you kind of brought up the idea of of like a real life last action hero movie ticket. Oh, yeah. That was my and, easy answer. And, yeah. and that yeah. that was, you know, that was the the thing where it's like once I thought about that, I'm like, holy shit. Like, can you imagine the ability to have a ticket and just go, you know what, I'm going to go hang out in Middle Earth today or today I'm going to go, you know, j- d- don't put on Hereditary, put on <laughs> Put on Sound of Music or something. I'm going to go. Let's try our luck in the Murray.
0: Aliens universe and yes. see what happens.
1: <laughs> that, I'm only
2: going to be that, hanging out. With, yeah. That's a good idea. The, like the magic ticket uh, getting you into some. Cinema space or like a T. I, I would uh, right now. I'm just about to finish rewatching Party of Five. I would definitely mm. use the ticket to uh, enter Party of Five and hang out with Bailey and Charlie. What and Julia and Claudia?
0: Party of Five. Like the the the. I never watched it, but wasn't it like a who the fuck was it's, in? It's that?
2: five children who are left orphaned because their parents died in a a car accident.
0: Oh yeah, mm. who wouldn't want to visit there? Yeah that sounds fun. <laughs> what are you doing in the party of five universe? <laughs> I <laughs> mean, Adam lovely. Scott
2: is there. He's in the, the <laughs> last season. So um... He's in
0: Hellraiser bloodlines too. Like fucking, I would Is he? I, I <laughs> have not seen Hellraiser Bloodlines. Oh my I'm god. Watch that. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely check that out. Yeah. <laughs> well, um yeah. here's another question I want to ask mm. you, Jay. Um mm-hmm. Leland gone. I, I, my, my take on this character is that he is pretty evil from the get go. It, it seems obvious to me that he's, you know, a yes. trickster, you know, not to be trusted, mm-hmm. probably up to, up to no good at all times. Um, he's evil, like stone cold evil. I'm wondering if you have ever met someone in your life, and you don't have to name names, uh, unless you want to, but, uh, mm-hmm like someone who radiated evil where you were like, Oh shit, I got to get away from this person as quickly as possible.
2: Hmm. Um, I mean, I, I hung you out work with, in the uh,
0: entertainment biz- business.
3: I, I do. I, I want to
2: remind you. Yes. Uh, for cursed films, I hung out with some, uh, witches and black magicians and an exorcist. And I don't think that they were inherently evil, but, the guy who was doing the exorcism certainly was a con man. So if that's pretty Uh close to evil, uh, you know, Mm. fooling people with mental health issues into thinking that they're being exercised for, you know, a, a $500 or whatever he charges. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. that's probably the closest thing that the, the black magicians were all extremely nice and, you know, um, EA Coetting, I met in uh, while filming the first season of Curse Films. He's a a witch and he does online courses on YouTube. When he when we asked him if he could curse a film for us or do some sort of demonstration, he. uh, I guess I can say this, but he he basically said, I could do a death curse on camera. Is there anyone you want to kill? Mm. And I. I said no. There isn't. Oh, isn't. I'm percent
1: 100. That is not a power you want to put on Scott Wompler's hands. I can tell you that much. No, I would direct it at at my 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 very
0: good friend, my brother, but also my my, my social media nemesis, Phil Nobile <laughs> Jr. and and mm. C. And just to see what I think it would be a good <laughs> prank. A Imagine hey. if I could go to Phil and be like, I put a death curse on you. Like, that's so much. Uh, uh, Jay, uh, Phil and I have a long, like, years long running uh, prank war and and an, an antagonism toward each other. Love each other like <laughs> brothers. But, like, um, I love fucking with him and he loves fucking with me. And uh, if I could go to Phil and be like, you got a death curse on you now, man. So
2: I could hook you up.
0: Wrap it up. (laughs) Yeah, that would. Yeah, I would just to see what happens, you know, and if if nothing else to prove somebody wrong, but you didn't take them up on it, it sounds like
2: I didn't. We were one thing we were considering is trying to reach out to someone like Pendulette, like a a skeptic and asking them if we can borrow their name and, you know, identity to (laughs) be death cursed (laughs) to kind of test how much of a skeptic they are, how much of a non-believer. Yeah, we didn't end up doing that. I'm just
1: sitting here like marveling at the fact that, Scott, you think you have this power, and you're not going to direct it at, say, I don't know, fucking Kim Jong-un or you know uh-huh. you're, you're you're wanting you're wanting to aim this this power of being able to essentially push someone dead at, at your friend <laughs> uh and you're like yeah it's probably not real but it just it might be real enough to make I it will tell you. To- i will
0: tell you why because i don't mm. believe in it i i straight up don't right. believe it's true you know so right off the bat i have there are no safety concerns on my end <laughs> mm-hmm. like i don't think this person can follow through on this i don't believe in this shit and also i happen to know i think phil would be really unnerved by it <laughs> i think he would be like hey man he'd be like haha you know that would be the first response and then i'd be uh-huh. like hey feeling a little uh almost dead today and then he'd be like hey man fucking cut it out. <laughs> like I think <laughs> I think I could work him like a like a mm. like a punching bag on this and eventually drive him to hysteria. This motherfucker, we are talking about the man who when I was on a diet once sent me he have a let me back up. Phil and I have a long running argument about what is better. Frosted pop tarts or unfrosted. Mm. I am in the frosted camp. This animal. This this beast is is still out here telling me that unfrosted pop tarts are better cuz he puts butter on them. Fuck off. Hmm. Right? Um and I didn't know you could time, get
2: unfrosted.
0: Yeah, no one should. Uh and then <laughs> I was like I was on like a really serious diet at one point and then uh we were in the midst of this argument. This is going back several years. And he sent like two cases of fucking unfrosted Pop-Tarts to my house. <laughs> cases, not boxes, cases <laughs> like I had motherfucking I had Pop-Tarts for days, son, and <laughs> I, they were so tempt. Like he was trying to tempt me into eating mm. the thing,
1: you know, that he like that's diabolical. Yeah. So of course, you know, that the response to that is write his name in the fucking death notebook. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> That's how we play I, over I, here. So
2: it's it's funny the the what you were mentioning you know you would do it because you don't believe that it's real, right? We we uh, what ended up happening with first off that EA co-editing the guy we filmed is in trouble apparently because he did. Uh, teach someone to do a death curse and apparently someone in the UK killed some people based off of his teaching. So it's very dark and very, I mean, he was probably the person I should have mentioned as being maybe evil, but, but he, Mm -hmm. um, he cursed a film for us and it was, uh, it had to be bleeped out of the show uh, because there were concerns about legal issues Mm -hmm. and the film was Avatar 2 which I was so annoyed that we couldn't, we couldn't uh, put it in the series. But if you rewatch, you can go to the the, the post credits and see him cursing Avatar Two with with the names being bleeped out. But when Avatar Two was coming out, I mean, it's funny we shot that and then COVID happened and then Avatar was delayed. And you know, uh, I had asked him there's there's a whole like short documentary of him and me talking about cursing avatar 2 <laughs> that i would love to release but shutter would not do it they were like can't do it. it it just the legal team is not comfortable and i was like really the legal team is not comfortable that uh, about cursing a film because they think that it could come it back might to them hold up in court. yeah i like- mean it was insane
0: that's so fucking funny
2: yeah it it was uh it was one of those situations where you know it we went so far with it and then we had to pull it back so much that it didn't land as well as it would have <laughs> if we could have just uh kept it all in there but but you that's gotta a, loop yeah, back to that guy too. and be
0: like hey uh two billion how, how are you feeling now like is it <laughs> yeah. uh did it work or did you
2: accidentally curse Avatar 3?
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's so fucking funny. Uh, Vespi, have you ever met anyone who, who you
1: felt was inherently evil? I was, I was, <laughs> c- you know, combing through my memory when you brought up that question. And, you know, the people that I've run into that I think do. I've run into some people, I've either met them or been in the same room with them that are unquestionably have done evil things and stand for evil purposes but mm. the feeling that i've gotten i've been in the room with donald trump i've been in the room like i no shit like bumped into ted cruz uh and those dudes like you know you, you get ready for some more one-star reviews but you know ju- i i don't they're fucking clowns I, though they're not like you know. th- yeah, they don't radiate, like, dark magic energy or whatever, but, right. like, th- they have been responsible for, m- for more, like, hate in the world, you know, than just some random, like, maybe I ran into some dude who killed somebody once, like, I don't know, you know, it's like, I didn't get that feeling, but the feeling I got with both of those guys was like, oh, that's just a sleaze bag, used car salesman, you know, dipshit sleaze bag right. vibe. Off of those people. Um, and keep in mind, when my, my Trump uh, run in was, uh, we went to a premiere of a movie, you know, that we were in the same theater at the what, premiere. Wall Eve. Street, Money Never Sleeps. Yes. No, it was King Kong. Going bringing it back to King Kong. Uh, he he came to the New York premiere. <sighs> and at that point, he was just the dude from. That you know, motherfucker the,
0: didn't sit still for three hours.
1: Mm hmm. I think he's I mean I don't have memory of him getting up and leaving but my memory of that was him we were all sitting in the theater um and they had multiple theaters for this because it was a big big deal so I wasn't even in the main like where all the cast is, is like some guests of, of the film and a lot of the VFX people and shit were in my theater. Right. And then in walks Donald Trump and he like waves at the crowd. Like this is his fucking movie or whatever. And like trying to get the attention and spotlight as he walks in, like right before it starts. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I just remember the thought going like, Oh, well that's fucking thirsty as shit. You know, like looking, okay, great, great. You're rich and you have buildings with your name on it. And you sit the fuck down and watch a movie. So my feeling on that, like, isn't like based on him just like oh i don't like him because he was a a president i didn't like or a politician at that point he was a fucking democrat you know it's like i just thought he was a slime ball um anyway so like i'm trying to think of that the i haven't had that feeling where like i bump into somebody and go okay this is just fucking bad news person you know the i can't be around this guy's energy or this lady's energy i can't Mm -hmm. can't do that um, and the people that I Thank have you run for into, including
0: that, women in this, yes, in this statement. Yeah. There, the there
1: can be bad women too. Yes. So, um, yeah, but nothing. Yeah. I, I haven't had that, but like the people that I thought of like instantly were, you know, the, the, the people that are like enacting laws and doing what they can to, you know, as of. this recording you know it's all in the news like now the GOP stance is to quote unquote eradicate LGBTQ or trans uh, uh, specifically trans um uh ideology slash maybe people too, you know, right. Uh, things it's like, cause that, that is unquestionably evil in my mind. It's, you know, yes. and, but I have a feeling if I ran into that fucking, you know, politician that said that I would just think of him much. Like I thought of Ted Cruz when I saw him I was like, Oh, you're just a fucking worm, you know, <laughs> of a mm-hmm. person. you're, you're not evil and you're not Darth Vader. You're just a fucking sweaty, you know, little fucking asshole, you know? So, Hmm. I don't know. That's a long-winded response and not, not nearly as entertaining as Jay's. I apologize.
0: Yeah, the that. Avatar 2 thing is fucking killer. <laughs> <laughs> James Cameron is my answer. <laughs> no. And it's so funny that that's the first thing that came to mind. Like, it wasn't even coming a, a, out around that time. You know? It <laughs> no. <was> just, <laughs> he's just mad about Avatar.
2: <laughs> yeah, I remember he I'm asked. what about that like, for days he asked to see a picture of james cameron so i brought him up on my phone from imdb mm. and then he asked what i thought we should do to the the production and i i the only thing i could come up with was maybe make the uh tracking balls on the mocap stage start falling <laughs> off of everybody and it would just <laughs> completely mess everything up but um I'm glad it. I'm glad it didn't happen. I'm glad it was a, a big success. Yes, of course, of course.
0: So you may have met your own Leland Gaunt, the anti-avatar to Leland Gaunt.
2: <laughs> um, well, but, speaking uh, of the name Leland Gaunt, is is that a yes? Um, like, where does that come from? It's such an interesting name. Oh, I have I no mean, idea. Does it mean something? <laughs>
1: Uh, you know, we, we are experts on Stephen King stuff. So, uh, I am going to make up a, a theory now. No, no, um, no, I just think, <laughs> I think it's kind of, it, it, it's a great thing, fucking I, name. I, That's it. I love, it I love the name. It is, it is a very, I don't know. It's a very mysterious name. It has a little air of cheesiness, like a good star Wars villain, mm-hmm. you know, like how mm-hmm. by the, Darth by Gaunt. the second. Yeah, by by the second or third prequel you're just like the next guy's just going to be Darth bad guy. You know, mm-hmm. it's like Darth Maul, <laughs> Darth Sidious, you know. Uh it, it General Grievous. It's just like, you know, Darth it, bad boy. Darth mm, Darth angry man, you know. It's like there's going to be, you know, it, it's a little uh cheesy in that that respect, but there I don't know, it just fits the character so well. It does feel like a devilish name, you know. It's uh mm-hmm uh you know and and it fits the character and and something that i really truly love about the whole conceit of this whole thing isn't that it's just like here's you know here's a million dollars that you want and all you got to do is this every single thing is some sort of tchotchke that might be worth something it might be worth absolutely nothing but it means the world to whoever it's there for like it's their you know, it, it is that little thing, like you were talking about your Dick Tracy shirt, it might not be super valuable, but it means a lot to you, you know, that it it's so your Dick Tracy shirt answer is actually way more of a, um, I I don't know, a fitting answer than, you know, the, uh, the last action hero ticket or something, what, a, you know, major, it's like every single thing that he's offering, you know, the reason it's a needful thing for the person is because it fulfills some sort of. Thing that they feel like is missing from their life you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh and in you know and so that that like i don't know what mine of that is but you know i have a feeling like walking into that store nettie didn't think hers was gonna be you know a figure you know a, a little humble figure that was broken you know when her husband beat her or whatever like she sees it and she just knows she has to have it you know
2: it is weird so. because there is there is the feeling of Uh, you know um, nostalgia connected to an item and like the guy with the letter jacket and um, that making him feel youthful again. And, but JT Walsh's character, the horse race thing, the, the game, the game itself, isn't the thing that is like the, the nostalgic connection or whatever. It's him wanting to be able to win money off of the, the horse races. And I guess Mm -hmm. in part pay back the money he owes so it feels like for him, it's right. a little bit of a different uh, story in terms of the item.
1: He, well, it, yeah, it's something that he needs because in that moment he is like the walls are closing in on right. him as he's about to get caught embezzling. You know, to feed his his gambling addiction. You know, but that also goes to the um, to Polly's character. You know, where her needful thing is something she needs more than like oh this. Reminds me of my glory days of high school. It's like she's living with crippling uh, pain, and here's this trinket, a necklace that will cure her early onset arthritis. You know, and uh, and to to me that is like that is way more devilish than than uh, you know offering up a baseball card. Although I will say in the extended cut, and I don't remember if this is that way in the book, but in the extended cut uh the reason why uh the kid wants the baseball card so much is he explains that his dad is dead and he he and his dad used to collect these things but the mickey mantle card it was a different card in the book but the mickey mantle card in the movie was um uh, like the one thing that they can never collect. So like the first thing he asks for when Leland Gaunt says, uh, like, what is the one thing that you want? He says, I want my dad back. And he's like, well, I can't do that, but you know, I might have something of interest And in this. And he brings up the Mickey mantle. Uh, card because that was the thing that connected him to his dad. it was the thing they did together, and it was the one car they could never get because it was too rare or out of his you know price range you know
2: mm-hmm. it, it it's interesting um, because it feels almost like like the arthritis thing uh, sounds or feels like faith healing you know uh, manipulating yeah. people in that form. the baseball card thing at least how you're saying it's it's presented in the book feels like something you might get out of a a session with a psychic where you're trying to make some connection right. with somebody that's passed <laughs> and they're, right. they're helping you make that connection in exchange for money. Um, yep. he, he's definitely representing, uh, a, a lot of different ways people can be manipulated yeah. emotionally based on people they miss or items they miss that, you know, make them think of people that are gone, uh, which, is, is also interesting because like you're saying that the idea of wanting to get rid of this arthritis is certainly more pressing or, or like a, a stronger needful thing than a letter jacket. So it, it kind of says something about the people as well. Like if the, that character, if the letter jacket is the absolute thing he needs because he needs to be reminded of his, his high school days. It's like the then, uncle in fucking Napoleon dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Then he, he seems to be living a good life if that's his main, you know, needful thing.
1: Well, I mean, you're right. It speaks to the character because Polly as a character is very pure. You know, she is, you know, she's supportive, she's kind, she's empathetic. um, And she wouldn't, she wouldn't do something cruel or mean or doubt her relationship with with uh, Pangborn. She, you know, she wouldn't do any of that for, you know, say, you know, a fucking expensive book or, you know, or you know, or even like her own diner or whatever the fuck, you know, like there isn't s- something material, you know. But I, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm someone that has chronic pain and. You know, it's been good recently, but like I've had months in a row where, like, even the medication that I'm supposed to work doesn't work, and and it's just that time my body says, you know, it's time to 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 hurt every day, and maybe you'll get to walk today, and maybe you won't. You know, it's like, you know, I've I've lived with that, so the idea of having, you know, a trinket that if I know if I have this, if I wear a bracelet or a necklace or something. And, uh, and I know that I don't ever have to worry about it or experience that again. Like that it's, it's pretty, like, I understand where the temptation would be, you know, in exchange for that, all I got to do is, you know, I don't know, throw some Turkey shit on, on some, some hanging laundry. Sure. Fuck it. Why not? You know, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, a, and, and that's where the insidiousness of Gaunt as a character is in the kind of genius of King. And as he weaves this within the. The narrative of the book where you know it's an escalating thing where you're kind of the characters realize a little too late that you know in for a penny in for a pound and you know because at the stuff at the beginning is just so it's like it, you know it's it's uh it's the kind of thing it, it would be like uh you know uh scott and, and uh phil's prank war you know where you're just fucking with people a little bit. And then that escalates to now you're damaging property to now you're like, now Now you're you're blowing up a fucking church. (laughs) Now you're trying to curse Avatar 2 to to death. You know, it's like, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's, you know, the, the the way it escalates, it's, it's, it's pretty genius. And, and um, uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a wonderfully constructed story. And uh, and, yeah, I don't know what else to say on that, but it's great.
0: I've been sitting over here thinking, is Leland Gaunt a grifter because he uh, grifters are, are huge right now. Right. You know, that's, that's predominantly uh, the biggest assholes we see on social media are these, you know, the Krasn signs to put it like uh, on, on the left and on the right, you've got Ben Shapiro and fucking a million other people. Um, Leland Gaunt feels like kind of a grifter to me, but I think his his methodology isn't the same, right? Mm. Because he's he's sort of he's baiting people, but he's not like he's not necessarily doing it for his own financial reward. It's more about it just amuses him and he wants to cause chaos, right? So he's Leland Gaunt is not a grifter. Right?
1: I don't think so. No, I mean I, I think that he's he, he he's a shit stir. He is he yeah. definitely oh, yeah. likes chaos. He he wants to watch the world burn and this is his his delight in it. Um no, I believe he you know he's fairly open about all that, you know, towards the end whenever he's exposed and he actually kinda has a point. And you know, not, not to uh <laughs> not to uh uh you know give him too much give the devil too much credit, but it's he has a thing at the end in the movie and especially, you know, Alan Pangborn makes his big passionate speech uh, and played wonderfully by Ed Harris in the movie. You know, he makes a great Pangborn and, and like, he's got the presence and rewatching the longer cut. It really kind of struck me just like this dude's like a fucking true blue movie star. He just commands you every single, you know, your eye, every single scene he's in. And, uh and he has this big speech to the town as everything's going to shit towards the end where he's just like, you know, he's like, you know, we're good people, you know, resist the idea of this, you know, this is, this just this guy manipulating you and, and all this stuff. And then all the people start going like, yeah, he made me, you know, steal this guy's book. And then he made me do this. And And his response, Gant's response is it's like, take a little fucking responsibility. It's like, all I did was offer you something and tell you the price. And you're the ones who decided to pay for it. And he's not wrong. You know, it's a little bit of, you know, in this day and age, I kind of think about, um the Infowars listener or whatever like sure. it's like they have culpability too if they listen to alex jones it's not just alex jones saying some shit that might you know get a bunch of skinheads to to protest somewhere right the skinheads protesting you know had that in their heart and wanted to do that anyway and he just gave them the excuse to do it you know what i mean so it's like at a certain point you have you the townspeople of castle rock have a little bit of responsibility to share in in doing this stuff nobody you know force force them you know with a gun to their heads to do it it was like they wanted something and they said you know this isn't a, a bad price to pay for it and and what he does really brilliantly is he 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 being stephen king the author and also leland gaunt as the character they they really make it they, they makes great pains to find what's already existing in this town, the rivalries and the discontent and the distrust between, say, different religions or the mm-hmm. the, the rivalries between like Nettie and, and Wilma. It's like he sees that and all he has to do is fucking, you know, throw a little kindling on on, on this thing that's already smoking you know and and watch it flare up and that to me is like the real heart of the story is you know king when he's talking about small town main stuff you know whether it's salem's lot or needful things there's always that kind of or dairy and, and it there's always that kind of rot at the center of the small town um the idyllic small town and you know this is that existed before Leland Gaunt showed up and, and to his point at the end, it's like, you all had all this shit in your heart anyway. you know, don't blame me for it. And, you know, I kind of walked away from this last viewing of this going, yeah, he's kind of right. He's, you know, as much as, you know, you, you should, uh, uh, you know, think he's a bad dude for, you know, uh, for tempting everybody, you know, it's, he he never made anybody do anything, you know?
2: There's also an interesting Hmm. question of free will in there um yeah oh yeah whether whether or not they had any choice to do other than what they did because of Leland Gaunt's interference with their in their lives he's almost like the um author of horrible shit in the world and he's because I I'm guessing I don't know if the book expands on this but in the film, when Ed Harris sees all of those newspaper headlines were to assume that Leland Gaunt has been playing this game for forever and is responsible for basically everything horrible in the world. Like this is a representation of, of, um, you know, some, some sort of evil force that inspires people to do horrible things i i, I mean they, there's even a world war ii headline in there so what i i'm curious what you know did does that mean like hitler had a needful thing and he i, I don't know <laughs> like maybe it's it's reading into it too much but well maybe um, maybe he
0: wasn't setting up a boutique antique shop in nazi germany but perhaps he was <clears throat> I don't know. I've always interpreted that as like Leland Gaunt being sort of a Forrest Gump like character who mm. is like wandering through the ages and, you know, causing havoc wherever he goes. It, yeah. it it just so happens that it took this form in Castle Rock, Maine, and in the most likely version of that to happen. You know, of course, it's a, a boutique shop and a, a little, you know, antique store. But with uh, the Nazis, I would imagine he was, I don't know, he's like fucking the minions or something, you know, like they're just, they're always turning up at the worst time for these super villains. (laughs) I
1: I think the implication is that whatever shit he was stirring, it it might not have been, you know, teenage fucking Adolf Hitler walking into a a store in Germany, you know, but it could have been seeing a Dick Tracy shirt. Seeing a Dick Tracy shirt, yeah, he really wanted that admit one Dick Tracy shirt. He didn't know why, but he he wanted it. Um, you know, but it, you know, the hatred that he was already brewing, and that he could have been, you know, the Wilma of this of this situation, and you know, and uh, he thinks that you know, uh, some Jewish people tarnished his his house or threw rocks at his house or whatever. You know, it's like, you know, I think that's the implication of of that. You know, obviously, when you start getting into real world uh especially you know quote-unquote recent history like that you know then it gets a little gets into some areas where it's not so as comfortable you know with the idea of like oh it's just the devil behind the nazis it's like no you know there's those are real people who just did horrific you know things um so it's not super comfortable but it's um I think that's the implication is that he had a hand in all that, and that he, you know, that's the thing about the ending of this thing too, is he doesn't, it's not like they, you know, they banish him back to hell or, you know, somehow kill the devil. And, you know, he might not even be the devil, but he is definitely a devilish figure. Um, You know, he just goes, okay, well shit, you know, I only got a couple of murders and, uh, you know, out of this one. And, and, uh, you know, dang you, Alan Pangborn, but I'm going to, uh, go right off now and there's nothing you can do about it. And, and uh, <laughs> I, th- he, I think he even says, and I don't know if this is in the regular cutter, the just the extended, but in the, in the cut I watched this morning, he, uh, you know, he even says like, well, you know, you and Polly, you're going to now go forth and have kids and I'll meet your grandson whose name is this. And I'll meet him in 82 years, you know, or something. It's like, you know, so he has some sort of view of the future, you know, uh, as well. So he's just, I don't know. He's kind of this Loki-ish figure, I guess. You know where he, he just goes around and causes chaos and mischief, and and he delights in it. And you know, and that's where honestly the casting of Max Max von is so great in the in the movie. Um, you know, because he has that twinkle in his eye whenever the shit's going down, you know, and he's actually less threatening when he's more devilish, like certain points where he's like writing in his book, you see like gross fingernails and, you know, he's got dirty teeth and shit and, you know, but he's, he's way more effective to me when he's just like a, a charming old dude. That's just delighting in, in everything oh, yeah. and horrible that's going on around him. For sure. Uh, Jay, do you have any final thoughts
0: on needful things?
2: So it, it's been a while since I, I've, watch this i remember at the time when it came out watching it a number of times and i feel like it just hit at a right moment for me like a formative moment and there were just some things that stood out cinematically at the time and and still do that um weirdly this movie kind of has has kind of disappeared a little bit at least in my you know circle and Rewatching it, it reminded me how uh, formative maybe it was to a degree. I like the use of classical music, the classical music cues throughout. Um, I, I think it's well-directed and, and well-acted. Ed Harris is, if anything, maybe underutilized, but he has his great right. um, freak-out moment in the hallway with the two guys that reminds me of his freak-out moment at the uh, History of Violence uh, mm-hmm. press thing at at uh, tiff but um yeah i mean it's it's uh it feels like it it's better than it 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 should be when compared to a lot of other stephen king adaptations that are goofier or which i also like you know that that's not not saying anything but uh, on on this watch, I was kind of surprised to see that W. D. Richter uh, adapted it or, or did a a version of a screenplay. He's
1: the credited screenwriter. Yeah,
2: yeah. And Peter Yates is the executive producer. I'm a huge Crawl fan, so I I was surprised by that. Um, did you know
0: that uh, Fraser C. Heston, who directed this, is the uh, son of Charlton? Aston.
2: i didn't know that until you guys mentioned that um yeah. i i was looking him up and oh did someone it earlier? And, yeah
1: i mentioned that earlier oh i wasn't yeah. paying
0: attention i'm sorry <laughs> <Tell
2: you>. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah that that's that's wild and it, it's just one of those movies where it seems like a lot of the people behind the camera like there aren't a lot of um when i was looking up on imdb who went on to do what? Not a lot seemed to happen for a lot of people on this movie. Uh, weirdly, but but I I really enjoy it. I think it's it's entertaining. It's got a great cast. Um, I love J T Walsh, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's it's a nice, simple little morality tale. And it reminds me of like Night of the Hunter and Something Wicked This Way Comes, and those oh, types yeah. of stories. Um, very classic and timeless timeless except for the achy breaky heart needle drop there is is
0: definitely an argument to be made that this is like king doing bradbury on oh yeah just in terms of uh something wicked which is you know a classic story i don't you know uh i don't think we need to tell our listeners about that but yeah this is definitely him in that mode um as we bring this episode in for a landing, uh, mm. Jay, um, what are you working on right now? Where can people find you? Where can people find the How to Build a Time Machine physical
2: release? This yes. is this is self-promo co- corner. The, okay. the floor is yours. Here we go. Uh, mm-hmm. The How to Build a Time Machine Blu-ray is available at VinegarSyndrome.com under their yes. partner label section. Um, they have new, by uh, circle collective on that. Picture. Yes. There's deleted scenes. Um, we actually, I, I have the full tour that Bob Burns gave to Rob in the, in his, Oh place. no shit. So there's, Oh, that's great. Lots of great stuff in there. Um, are my two characters in the film never really connect, but in the deleted scenes, I have two scenes of them sitting down for a conversation and, um, so there's some good stuff there. And Awesome. Uh I will say I I co-host a podcast called Film Junk um which is film a film podcast. We've been doing it for 17 years. years.
0: Yeah, I was uh,
2: We uh, yeah. we are literally in the Guinness Book of Records for longest running film podcast. <laughs> Like it, it's it's someone who listens to the show is works at Guinness. So they actually, um, yeah. did all the research and, and checked that out. And it's just like such a specific record, <laughs> like not, not longest running podcast, not best podcast. <laughs> it's like longest running film podcast. Um, but we were, we've been doing it since around 2005, <clears throat> beginning of 2005. So it's been a while. So if people enjoy, mm-hmm. uh, very casual movie talk you can come over mm-hmm. and um uh, check us out. Well, you know, and, Scott, in terms we of per- have the Sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, Scott, we have the longest running Stephen King podcast that once had Jamie Lee Curtis as a guest on it. We're That's we're fair. in that niche That's of fair. a niche. Um, I don't think That Guinness. can be disputed. <laughs> I, I, I think
2: you could actually get in at guinness I, I, apparently they are desperate <laughs> for some content but um yeah and i i'll say i i'm just about to start uh it's very early and not really a lot of details yet but about to start a uh feature documentary on john teeter the holy supposed shit. time I traveler was, who posted online.
0: I was waiting to ask you about this. Um, First of all, thank you for pronouncing his name correctly because I was about to mangle that. I thought it was Titor. (laughs) Um, So,
2: I actually, uh, there's a debate about that. And I might be, uh, some people say it is Titor, Titor, including one of the main, I said Teeter. Right on. I think it is Titor, (laughs) but that just sounds weird to me. So this, I will I be stubborn. Like,
0: I feel like this project was announced a while back because I, I feel like I heard about it and was like, oh, holy fuck. Yes, this is exactly the guy I want doing that documentary. I'm a big yeah, documentary. I've been circling
2: nerd. this for a while. Um, I actually, the first thing I, I made based on John Teeter uh, and Rob Niosi from How to Build a Time Machine was in it, it was a film school uh documentary way back in 2005 but um god damn we we did it was originally supposed to be part of how to build a a time machine and we did film some material and uh i i had to make the tough decision to cut it from that film because that movie was just so it was turning into such a like intimate sentimental story that it didn't really fit um but i'm very excited to be able to return to it and finally. Um, get it off my plate. (laughs) What's your What's your take on that whole thing?
0: Like, I don't know if our listeners have any idea who this guy is. His name is John Teeter or Titer, T I T O R. Uh, It was a like an internet thing that happened. What, like, nearly twenty years ago now?
2: Yeah, it was someone. went online in 2000, 2001, claiming to be a time traveler from the year 2036. Uh, They said they had to go back in time to 1975 to get an IBM 5100 computer that could speak a code language that they needed in 2036 to uh, recover the American infrastructure, which was antiquated and based on code that was no longer around. After a surprise nuclear strike from the Russians in 2015 and a second American civil war due to a controversial presidential election. So there, Mm -hmm. there are some things that he talked about that for believers seem to be come slowly coming true if, but at different times. Um, but I mean, it's interesting because it's a, a very rich story the story john told it's like a greatest hits of all of your favorite time travel movies and it affected a lot of real people in a very real way and is kind of a great story to analyze this idea the idea of faith you know like if if one of these people that has dedicated a big chunk of their life to following the advice of this supposed time traveler how likely are they to admit that it wasn't a real person if they were presented with Mm -hmm. Evidence of that, hmm. um, right? So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting story, and I'm excited to uh, finally get to tackle it.
0: What's your uh, opinion overall? Full of shit or not? Whether
2: uh, whether or not he was real? Yeah, uh, I I don't think he was real. But yes. the I I still don't know who created it. There there are some people yeah. that. Mm. Are, or you know, how he points to
0: any of those? Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Yeah, there's there's some theories that it's multiple people. There's a, a man named Larry Haber in Orlando who is an entertainment lawyer who represents the family, the current real life family of John Teeter, um, or claims to. And we did we did film with him, and he actually got John Teeter's mother on the phone for us, which was exciting. What? Yeah, it, it was very odd, but. It's it's oh, a I project that will ha-
3: fucking thing.
2: Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun, and we're doing um, a big like. I, I haven't been using the term recreation because I feel like all documentaries now, because of Netflix, <laughs> it's talking heads and then out of focus shots of people just filling airtime to get away from talking heads. <laughs> but we're Android we're doing job. like yeah. <laughs> high quality uh, adaptation of John Teeter's posts in like a science fiction film form that would kind of represent what his believers might be imagining in their mind's eye when they're thinking about the John Teeter story. Oh my fucking God. I'm so excited for this.
0: <laughs> I cannot tell you how excited I am for that. I've been a, a fascinated with that story for a very long time. Uh, you are absolutely the guy to do that. And uh, I cannot, I legit cannot wait to to see that movie. I, I, thanks. I'm, I'm glad to hear good, that. It's in
2: great hands.
0: Yes. Well, Jay, thank you so much for being here today. This was awesome. Uh, thanks for know, having uh, me. Yeah. Please uh, stay in touch and uh, let us know when that uh, the John
1: Peter movie is coming out. Will do Many thanks to Jay Cheel for joining us. Uh, if it hasn't been said or hadn't been said enough in the previous episode that you just listened to, you should check out Cursed Films, man. If you haven't seen that shit, it is bonkers. Oh, yeah. It is. It's so good. You get a whole new insight into all your favorites. You know, some of it, you know, who knows, might get a little weird with uh, witches and whatnot showing up and maybe witchcraft involved. That stuff I don't really buy, but I am really fascinated in hearing um you know, hearing all the the behind the scenes on stuff like The Exorcist mm-hmm. and Poltergeist and and all these things where you think you know the full story, and and uh, I've seen details in there that I'd never seen before. So if you totally. somehow have missed cursed films, uh, you know, use this as your opportunity to correct that mistake.
0: Yeah, and I'll also throw in a a shout out to How to Build a Time Machine as well. I'm mm, a huge yeah. fan of that documentary. Uh, very heartfelt and kind of strange, and it's about people in their obsessions, which is, you know, one of my favorite documentary subjects just seeing weirdos doing their weirdo shit, you know, not that we're not all weirdos to some degree, but I like, I like that shit. I like seeing people in their, in their element, in their zone, just really getting passionate about their particular flavor of weirdness. So definitely check that out and I'll echo what Eric said about curse films. I've watched that entire series through like three times. It's so goddamn good.
1: Hell yeah! So So, uh, uh, yeah, let's uh, talk about what's coming up. So you, uh, yeah, you want me to do
0: the next week, right? Yeah, you do next week. I'll, I'll do the bonus set.
1: Ooh, okay. See, this is how we divide up the labor on the KingCast babies. Yeah, it's very smooth. split it right down the middle. As long as things things are even, then when we start getting odd numbered things, then uh, then the axes start coming out. But we are nice. Yeah, if we and can't even. divide
0: by two, Eric and I are lost. We're fucking morons.
1: <laughs> that that is closer to to truth than you probably think. Um, uh, yeah. So next week on the show, we are going to be covering a a big title we are talking about the stand uh once again and i will say like most stand episodes you know that title is just so (laughs) goddamn big that uh, every time we do one of these things it's going to be chipping a little bit away at it um uh, this is a really fun episode we have a very funny uh comedian man of a thousand voices you might say uh i think we should just i think we should just tell him on this one Okay, we have our good friend Josh Robert Thompson is coming on to talk about this, stand. You might know Josh as, uh, for if you're a KingCast listener, he maybe contributed a little bit to uh, our anniversary episodes as Mr. Morgan Freeman. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, who He jumped onto our radar really through uh, Barb and Star when the Morgan Freeman crab popped up and we're like, mm-hmm. like, oh my god, they got Morgan Freeman to do this. And it wasn't, it was Josh Robert Thompson. Um, uh, he, he also did, uh, Jeffrey for the skeleton for Craig Kilborn. Yes. Uh, he's been around. And, uh, if you listen to Shelbyville, he is our very own Chet Buggins as well. So he has been such a trooper for us and he's so funny and, uh, he can just whip out random voices at any point we talked to so many people even though josh robert thompson's our only guest next week you will hear from george yes. lucas <laughs> you will hear from steven spielberg you will hear from morgan freeman there there is a there's, uh, there's an a voice you probably will not hear next week and you'll uh,
0: hear from all of them about the stand, the stand. Uh, it's <laughs> it is a cornucopia of delights
1: yes so we, we love Josh, and it was about damn time he got some main feed love, and uh, yeah. I think he killed it. It's a really fun episode, and I'm excited for y'all to hear
0: Yes, and uh, on, the, on the Patreon this Friday, um, we are doing something a little, we're throwing a little curveball into the mix. Um, we are going to be talking about two things. We're going to be talking about Stephen King's depiction of aliens and extraterrestrials, So, we're going to talk a little bit about the aliens from Dreamcatcher. We're going to talk about the Tommyknockers. We're going to talk even a little bit about um, the Low Men in Yellow Coats, who are Mm. extra dimensional beings. And we're going to be doing this in reference to uh, some recent reports that have been made regarding or from a whistleblower who has come forward saying that the United States is uh, in possession of. some non-human intelligent vehicles and maybe even some non-humans. This has been an ongoing story over the last few weeks. And uh, I guess I mentioned a thing about UFOs on the show recently because over in our Discord, people were clamoring for a uh, a UFO episode. They wanted to hear us talk about this a little bit more at length. And uh, I kind of thought about it as a joke at first, and then I started thinking about it more and was like, Actually, that would make a really intri- interesting episode right now. So we're going to go ahead and do it. Folks on the Discord, you're getting what you wanted. And uh, I'm very excited to dive into this particular topic because I went real down the rabbit hole on it in the last few weeks with all this weird shit going on. And I'll explain why I did that. We'll, uh, I'm excited to talk to Vespi about um, his feelings on UFOs, which I don't think he and I have ever really sat down and talked about. So... Um, Stephen King, aliens, UFOs, all that shit on the Patreon this Friday. So if you are not already a KingCast patron and you want to hear that, go over to patreon.com backslash the KingCast and sign up now, and you will get that delivered
1: straight to your inbox on, uh, well, this Friday. I'm excited. I can't wait to do it. So, uh, yeah, I think that about wraps it up. So I guess we'll see you all in the main feed. Uh, next week for some Josh Robert Thompson love with the stand, and then uh, some UFO talk this Friday on our Patreon. Adios, folks. Mm, bye. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespy—that's me—and Scott Wampler. Tiara Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.